This Quirocast podcast is brought to you by the book Sitting in the Shade of Another Tree. For too long, people of faith have focused more on pointing out where other religions get it wrong. But what if we decided to focus more on all the ways those other religions get it right? This path might end up leading us into deeper understanding, connection, friendship, and peace. This was the idea behind the book that Choir Publishing and Pathios decided to assemble, gathering voices from different religious backgrounds who have learned to listen to those outside their own faith traditions. We hope that the wisdom they share with us here allows you to become more open to the truth and beauty to be found outside your own faith community. Sitting in the Shade of Another Tree, from Choir Publishing and Pathios, available now on Amazon. Western Christianity has spent the last 2,000 years telling everyone they're separated from God. This is Not Church with John and Nat Turney. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Oh, there we go again. There's the the podcast voice. (laughs) Thank you for coming back on to National Public Radio, NPR. NPR. My name is, ah, I can't even think of a funny name to give you, Brian Sheboygan. Aloysius Johnson. That's a good one, man. Hi, this is your host, Aloysius Bonhoeffer. <laughs> and my brother, John. So we're so glad that you're here. This is the podcast, man. Uh, this is the one we call This Is Not Church, because if it was church, you would have run from the room screaming by now. I have to modify that one. because. Oh, wow. Well, just because of the stupid NPR voice. Yeah. Nobody did it better. And I'm telling you right now, no one has done it better yet than Jennifer Knapp. She nailed no. that and called me fat in the process. I and did we record it? We did. did. We okay, okay. Yeah, good. we started with her going, Hi, welcome to Oh my gosh, it was so good. If I could have maintained my my composure and not just cracked up <laughs> laughing, I would have loved to do that for like five, ten minutes. But I yeah. she cracked me up. Anyway. Yeah, this is not church. Um I'm I'm one of your hosts because see on this podcast we believe in value. Um, and you get two hosts, two hosts for the price of one. I know some throw four or five at you. <clears throat> Heretic happy hour looking at you. That's overkill. <laughs> you know what I mean? I feel like, I feel like now you're just kind of rubbing in our faces. All right. Oh, look at us. We have five hosts and they're all amazing. Yeah, whatever. Um, we'll give you two quality ones. All right. As Jennifer called us, uh, a couple of furry fat guys that she would avoid in bars. I, 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 <laughs> I, I was She's not simultaneously wrong. insulted and also sort of complimented. I'm like, that's not the, that's really not the persona I'm going for, but she's wrong though. I met her in a bar and she didn't avoid me. She, she, she was nice. But anyway, yeah. So here we are. I'm Nat. This is my brother, John. Say hi, John. Hi, John. It was the dog. For, I said, say hi, John. And the dog barked. Yeah, I know. Someone must be home. Or somebody said John Piper's name and a puppy got kicked. <laughs> uh, anyway, so we have a we have an awesome guest, man. We are so excited to have David Giles here with us today. I'm going to read you something quickly about him. Then we're going to jump in and we're going to just, we're going to, we're going to see where the conversation takes us. So uh, David Giles shows an interest in the little moments of life inspired by the slow cinema of Tarkovsky and the ambient music of Brian Eno. Giles understands that people are not just their highs and lows, but also all of their day-to-day errands. Aaron was the recipient of the William Shanebeck Award for Excellence in Creative Writing in 2020 and currently resides in Portland, Oregon. His first novel, There Once Were Orange Groves, is available now on Amazon from Choir Publishing. So, welcome to the podcast. David, how are you, man? Doing well. It's good to have you, man. John and I talked about have, have talked about recently, it's been nice to kind of get out of 
some of the, I won't say rut, but there was a pattern developing where we talked to a lot of writers who were theologians and they were deconstructing and they were, and it's been cool to get away from that somewhat. We like that still, but it's nice to talk to people who are doing what you're doing. Um, in this case, writing some fiction and also in your case, writing a, a particular kind of fiction that we think is, is really interesting. So if you wouldn't mind, maybe walk us through a little bit of the thought process behind the book and maybe get us jumped up on that. Yeah. Uh, so I, uh, my book is an autofiction novel. So in that sense, it's a equally like autobiographical while also being a fiction novel, though it's also the fiction part of it is a non-chronological story following these two siblings as they both try to grieve the passing of their father, um, as well as they try to process like what home means and if home is ever really something that can be found ever again. Oh, wow. Okay. I love it. So autobiographical, I, the, the whole messing around with timelines is interesting to me, you know, and it's, it's, uh, it has always struck me as like something that would be fun to do, but also could be complicated, right? So was that a, was that a complicated process to keep those things somewhat in a, uh, like where people could follow along or did it not matter if they got lost in the chronology? For me, it was a thing where I realized I wanted it to be about like the, it being out of order is kind of how uh, memory works. Yeah. And how, okay. When you think back on your life, you don't have your life in chronological order. And so the story's not in chronological order. It's like the little things that kind of stick around. And so that's why I left it uh, non-chronological. I also, when I was writing it, I don't think I knew from the start it was going to remain that way. I was just writing whatever came to me that day. I was like, you know what? It's pandemic. I might as well try to add some order to my life. So I'm going to take up a Lent's going on. I'll take a Lenten practice where uh, five days a week, I'll write for 30 minutes a day. And just whatever I write, I write. And so it was very much whatever I felt like writing. That's what I'd put on the page. I decided I wasn't going to just be like, I'm going to force myself to write whatever happens the next day. I'm like, I don't, I don't want to do that. I just want to write to just, just to write to do something. That's amazing though. I, I, I do... I love I love hearing about how people were productive with their with their downtime during the pandemic. I was productive, and then I gained about thirty pounds. I don't know. I just I felt compelled to just stay home and watch TV. But what I, we said, what you said to me offline, I thought was was like simultaneously funny and also really telling. You said something to the effect of you conceived of this idea during the pandemic, and there was no one there to tell you that, like this isn't a good idea. So yes, <laughs> how yeah. much um, how much farther would we get if there weren't people like if we did that and we're like. Hey, there was no one here to tell me, don't do that. So we're like, yeah, what the hell? I'll do it. Yeah. I do think that was a very helpful thing is just being like, I just need to do this thing to do this. The like the second chapter of the book, since it is partially like autobiographical, I just flat out say, I don't know if this is ever going to get published. I'm just writing this right now. So we'll see how that goes. <laughs> well, it's funny too, but you, you, you also, the other thing you just said that, that, that struck me was that like our memories aren't chronological. You know, and our memories aren't a lot of times, I don't know about yours, my memory's not that reliable, honestly. I could probably do a whole thing on like Mandela effect of my life. You know, like, I am certain this thing happened to me. And then if I drill down a little farther, I go, I'm not entirely sure it happened that way. Like it might have happened, like the bones of it might be. So maybe that's kind of where some of that autobiographical, almost fictional account comes in. Like, I, I think I remember it this way, but maybe not. Maybe, maybe or maybe it didn't happen at all. I don't know. Um, John lied to me a lot. We were going up. So, um, I was pretty convinced I would stop until I was about one. <laughs> what about now? So you, now, now, now I'm one hundred percent convinced. 
I'm a, I'm a total fucking alien. I have no idea. <laughs> I mean, I like you, I look at you like you are your father's son, dude. Like there is no denying that, uh, that, that you are Keith Giles' kid, man. Not sure if that's a compliment, but I meant it that way. So, well, I mean, he still has hair. I, I <laughs> on the other hand, so I don't know. I'm with you. I, I'm, see, I'm, I'm saying, I'm, I got, like, this is not the process of a big razor. This is God did this to me, and we still have <laughs> we still have things to work out. He and I. I'm a little I'm still bitter, but <laughs> that's cool, man. I, I I just think it's cool when when you can pursue something that. Like John and I were saying, I don't. I'm not aware of any other piece of fiction that's like this. Maybe somebody somewhere has done something like this, but it seems pretty original to me. And that's hard, you know. Uh, when, whenever I start thinking about, like, I might want to write some fiction, I'm like, yeah, but I don't know if I can come up with anything remotely original. So I think that you've done a really cool thing here of coming up with something that that is fresh. So kudos to you on that, man. Yeah, thank you. Um, I remember when I was like first starting it, lots of people were like, you're just telling people what your story is about before it's out? Aren't you worried people might steal your idea? And I'm like, I don't think it would matter if they did because <laughs> they're not me. And so I don't right. think they could write this. Like, Because yeah. it is a very personal story with it being like autobiographical. If someone else was to try to write it about my life, they wouldn't be able to do it. If they were to try to write it about theirs, it's a different story. And so I was just like, I'm totally fine with like telling people the basic gist of like this is the plot. When I started, I knew the rough out. I knew what the, the first bit of it was just going to be the two siblings. I knew that the s- second act and third act. I knew what they were going to be, and I knew the last line. But that was it. I, I didn't actually know any of the in betweens. Those got filled out along the way. Well, and I find it interesting because like the first thing that I highlighted in your book actually is part of your autobiography. And it's like, because it connected to me and it's, uh, I'll go ahead and read what I, what I highlight. Cause it says, as I write this, I cannot remember if, if it has really been over a year ago, sitting in that church, washing the altar at night that I last felt like God spoke to me or if I have just forgotten what, what has happened since that moment. And for me, that I mean, I had like a huge connection with that because as as I left the faith or whatever you want to call it, I can totally relate to that that moment where you're like, I don't remember, or I I'm not sure I can remember the last time that I feel like God and I connected. So there's this honesty of you, right? As as you're writing this autobiography part, and but then this bleeds into the story too. I feel like these characters are in the same kind of like, I don't know, there, there's this like ebb and flow of where they're going, how they're trying to deal with. And again, I don't want to give away too much because I want people to read your book, but I, I don't think it's, I, I think it's even talks about in your, your, like the overall, that, that they're dealing with the grief of the loss of their father, right? So that's not giving away anything. Not a spoiler. It's on the back of the book. <laughs> right. But I, what I like about it is it, the juxtaposition of timing. So you, you have these moments where the dad's alive and there's been mistakes or misgivings or things said that they wish they hadn't said. And then it juxtapositions with a, a point where, okay, now we're, now the dad is no longer here and now we're, we're, we're working through pain. And so I don't think you can get that same feeling if you do a chronological order story. And so I don't know if that was on purpose. Or again, like you said, you kind of just wrote what you wrote. 
But I still feel like there's, there's, there's some idea behind this. I don't think you're just writing just to like put, put words on paper. Um, that's, that's, that's one thing, but I think there's still like a, an idea of what you, what the path you want to go, even though it's not chronological, right? Yes. Yeah. I definitely, it's the sort of thing where as I would be writing it, I would realize what the next step should be. So even if I didn't have like, I know the end goal of this, I act one ends. And the reason why it ends there is because I wrote that line and my brain said, you're done with act one. And I thought about it and went, yeah, you're right. I'm done with act one. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, all, not all, but many endings are arbitrary anyway. So I, like, I feel like, uh, you know, it could be like a Forrest Gump kind of moment. That's like, that's all I have to say about that. And I'm just moving <laughs> on to the next thing. So I, I like that though, again, because I keep going back to that, what you said about memory and stuff like that sort of being this non-chronological thing. So so much of our life is we've tried to force into a linear movement thing, right? I go from point A to point B and everything that happens in between. And I like something that takes me out of that, if it can. It's, I think it's the reason why certain films work really well. I remember sitting down to watch Pulp Fiction with, with a friend once, you know, and I love, I mean, I, it was that movie I watched. And I'm like, oh my God, this was amazing. And I sat down to watch it with them and it just pissed him off. <laughs> It, it, that's a film that does that. I have so many friends who just not managed. But, but and, it, and what pissed him off was, it it constantly jumps around the timeline, right? So it's it, and so I that for me, I was like, I loved it because it kept me off balance the entire time, especially the first time you watch it, you're totally off balance. You know, even a movie like Memento that goes sort of backwards and does that whole thing, right? So I like those kinds of things that take you out of your comfort space, make you you know keep you a little on on edge a, a bit. Yeah, I, I could see how that as a, as a mechanism would work really well, especially in this kind of fiction that you're writing. In case anyone wonders, I do have the master sheet of every story. I did make a secondary one where everything's in order, and I'm like, no one ever, no one else is going to see this. I'm never sharing this with anyone. Um, I'm not going to let them have memento in order. I'm not going to do that for them. They don't deserve it. <laughs> you could, yeah. No one deserves that in the good or the bad way. That it, that, both. Like, like I like you enough to not share this with you. Like you don't. Yes, no one yeah. deserves. No one. Yeah. But but did it? Did it? Okay, that's a good question. So, um, did it? Did it change the having? Like reading through it in that way, did you read that and go, oof, I'm so glad I didn't do that? It, I don't think it works as well because then you just like, because it does also alternate between the two siblings. And so then it's like, if you put that in chronological order between them, like it still works, but it's just, it doesn't hit as well when you just have it just kind of like the, what one person's going through in their life doesn't follow the same arc as it would otherwise. Yeah. I just, that's cool. Well, well, that's the other point, right? That, that there's, there's two main characters and their arcs can't be the same either, right? So not only are you, you're, you're kind of messing with their, their memory, but you're messing with two people's memory. Yes. So you couldn't even, you couldn't even like, I would say go as far as it, you shouldn't even put it in order because then you're, now you're messing with the way two people's brains work, not only one. If you only have one character, you know, and you're you're like, I'm just going to mess with them and put them in chronological order. But now you have two, yeah, and they're not they're not they're not even in sync, right? They definitely are. Like, they there's only like one instance where they actually end up syncing up in the story near the ending of Act One, but it's like one instance in the entire book where like I think it becomes chronological for one bit, and that was more just coincidental, I think, than anything else. <laughs> yeah, yeah. At some point, 
I guess at some point, just chance would have it that these might, they might sync up for a second, right? Yeah. And then deviate again. So I think that's, yeah, again, I think that's really interesting. At, at the risk of sounding like a guy who has not read the book, and I'll be honest, I, I have it, I literally have it in front of me and I will read it. But what's the significance of the orange groves then? Is that, am I getting, am I asking like two? There once were orange groves. It's titled that because like I grew up in like Orange County, California, spent a lot of time there. Growing up, so many people, like when you're a kid, are like, do you know why it's called Orange County? It's like, yes, because of the orange. Yeah, because yeah, there used to be months. orange groves here. <laughs> and it's just like getting told that constantly as I'm growing up as a small kid and like knowing the answer. At one point, someone told me a different reason that apparently it was named after, uh, it was orange because like St. Orange, which was like some Catholic thing or something. I've never heard that before. I don't think that guy knew what he was talking about, uh, <laughs> but that's besides the point. Uh, maybe he's right, but. It, uh, late, later on in the book, the, it comes up like just talking about like geological time and how like l- compared like s- if you compare like geological time versus like the time of like a culture or like even just a species, like there's just nothing. It does not compare. And so instead of it being like thinking in geological time, just the time of like a landscape and like a cityscape. Um, like maybe you'll be able to be like you'll if you uh, think in the topic of like uh, the second death, which was a topic that came up in my first year of college uh, through the book Ovid, um, Ovid's Metamorphosis. Just like how like it most isn't art making art just a desire to re- be remembered after you die, and then the second death is the last time anyone ever speaks your name, and it's like well. Who knows? Maybe like this will slightly postpone the second death into uh, landscape time, into like cityscape time. It will, I know I have no chance of making it into geological time. <laughs> that's that's interesting and sad. I mean, it, I'm just, we're just postponing. I, I think <laughs> it's funny because like I uh, when I, I Jesus, we're going like twenty twenty years ago, maybe longer back. I I ended up in a ba- uh, band with this guy, and I I had shared this. My love of Disneyland or Disney, right? And he's just like, it completely shut me down. He's like, we don't even, I don't even talk about Disneyland. We can't talk about Disneyland. I was like, why? He's like, because my, my, my ancestors, my, my father's father's father, whoever owned these orange groves in Orange County that were decimated to make room for Disneyland. That All the property was bought out. So where Disneyland sits in Anaheim used to be orange groves. I lived right next to Disneyland, so that's why I heard that story so many times. <laughs> right. And he's like, I wasn't even allowed to bring up Disneyland. It was like, it was so taboo in his family that the, just it would just create this like moment of anger. So I was like, okay, sorry. I won't bring this up anymore. So I... Even though I haven't made it that far in the book, I, I kind of figured that's where it was because it just because you keep talking about California, and um, so I kind of figure that's probably what that the, the, there once were orange groves was about. But I have a completely different question, and again, I've only read about half the book, and I and I will I hope to finish it. Actually, I hope to finish it today because it's it's also it's a book that you don't want to put down. So anyone who's listening to this, once you pick it up, you're not going to want to put it down. What's the, what's What's your connection with temperature? Because it comes up a lot. You know, either someone's either in in an environment that's cold or they're in an environment that should be cold, but their air conditioner doesn't work, so it's hot. 
so it seems like temperature comes up a lot. It's enough that I think it's on purpose. Yes. It is definitely partially that like I grew up in a house that just the heater didn't work and the AC didn't work either. And so it was definitely like always being stuck in that thing. It's also that like for some odd reason, especially more during my teenage years, it doesn't it didn't really stick around too much, but it's still somewhat there that like going to sleep cold is just like there's something very comforting about it to some extent. I don't really know how to put it into words. The only way I could really explain it is, do you like falling asleep warm? No, that, the inverse. Hell no. (laughs) Exactly. So like the inverse of that is the only way I could really explain it in a way that would make any sense. But no. That's interesting. When I was, when when John and I were kids, I don't know if you remember this about um, our, uh, our cousin, John, always slept with a window open. Yep. Do you remember that? Yep. Like his room, like you'd go, we'd, if we'd crash with him, he lived with my grandmother for most of his life um, as a kid anyway. Um, we'd go to his, if you went and spent the night with him, you would freeze your ass off because he would sleep with, it could be December, wouldn't matter. And I got, but I really got used to this idea. Like I would much rather be cold at night than, than hot. I just can't do it. You know, the temperature extremes are interesting. But there's also something in like, isn't there something like in uh, like a lot of like sort of paranormal stories, you know, that kind of connect cold with the presence of something paranormal? So I don't know if there's anything. Are there elements of that in the book as well? Kind of. There may or may not be some ghost or... fiction in it. <laughs> nice. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I, thought, I thought I saw something about ghost fiction. The ghost fiction is more just tying into further aspect of memory. And just like, if you could really like look back as like an onlooker after you've died, like just how that would impact you, just like you probably would realize, oh, there was like, like I didn't catch that little detail. Like after I left the room, the other person maybe started crying or just any detail that you didn't see that would just completely change your, the way you looked at that situation. Wow. Very cool. Very cool. Uh, that's interesting. I I find that interesting too because and I would say that you've probably you've probably done this then because if that's the, if that's where you're thinking so like I find myself more often than not driving by and something catches my eye and either a car that drives by me or somebody on the side of the road they're doing something right that catches my eye to the point where I go go as far as to say I'm moving on in my life. And their life no longer matters to me, but they have their own life going on, right? Yeah. And so that's what that's about. It's like it catches you enough that you wonder what what happened after you left. And it's like it it, it doesn't happen all the time, but every once in a while, something catches your eye. Either you're driving or you walk by somebody, and you you get that moment where like our lives parallel for a second. We never really even contacted, talked, or anything. But then mine goes on this way, and goes theirs goes on that way. That's I find that very interesting. The that whole sec act two. I the reason why I knew act two was going to exist as like going and like going through memories and seeing the other side was originally like this began as just a short story of just the character of Audrey, and then I was like, I want to know what Jacob's side of this is. So then I wrote a bit more from Jacob's perspective, and then I realized, okay, there's another character introduced. What's their perspective? And then I realized, 
hold on, am I going to do this for every single character that gets introduced to the book? And my brain went, why not? And I explored my brain because that would be completely unreadable, let alone unwritable. So uh, I did have one person willing to tell me that's a dumb idea for one point in the writing, and that was me. <laughs> it's, it's useful to have at least one person yeah. who you trust. Yeah. Who will say... You know, not just some random dick on on Facebook or whatever, but some like some actual trusted person. Go, I love you, man. That's a that's a bad idea. Don't do that. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> oh, uh, a detail to know that is that when I was writing this, I was working graveyard shift. At least the first like few months of it, I it's mentioned that I was like wor- working graveyard. So yeah. I was not in like um the most coherent headspace when I started this novel. So like. That's probably a part of the reason why it's like non-chronological. Because like I had all these <laughs> ideas going on. And it was just like the only thing that my brain said that's a bad idea on was uh, having every single character get their own chapter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know. And how long did you work Graveyard Shift? Um, it was seven or eight months. Um, I was working at a lab that ran COVID tests. Oh, yeah. Um, okay. And it was working anywhere between like 40 to 50 hours. If it Sometimes I was working five days a week, some days six. The sixth day would always be a morning shift. Yeah. Oh, my Don't God. Don't do that. N- don't. Don't. No. <laughs> don't. <laughs> I, I highly unrecommended. Yes. I, I did. I, I, worked, um, I worked a shift like that once upon a time. I was, uh, um, I was in the military and I was, instru- I was an instructor at a, at a, at a, in a technical school uh, here in Texas. And we had so many students come through class at one point that they had to, they had, we had to stack classes up three, three classes a day. So one class went from, you know, in the morning, one class went into the evening, one class was overnight. And so it was like 11 o'clock at night, like six o'clock in the morning. The worst place I've ever been in my mental health was those three or four months when I worked that 11 o'clock at night to like six o'clock or seven o'clock in the morning shift. I never got my head around it. And I, you know what I mean? Cause you, I'd get home when the kids were getting up. I had, I still had young kids at home. So I would be getting home from all night working. Kids would be getting up. I'd be there trying to help them like get, get a break for school and stuff. And then trying to like sleep at some point during the day. So you could get up at 11 o'clock and do it again. Dude, weird shit happened. Like, <laughs> like, like, like weird shit. Like your sleep cycles get all jacked up, right? Oh You're, my goodness. Uh, yeah. So I can totally. I should have written in that time just to see what came out of it. (laughs) I will say that was like the worst headspace I've ever been in. I at least twice a month would just be like screaming at, I don't know what on the drive home. Um, Just like, (laughs) this isn't good. I should quit my job, but I'm not going to. (laughs) I can't do this. I just would randomly like break down and cry. Yeah. I'm like, like, why? Why am I? What am I? I'm just like, just like over. I don't even know. It It was absolutely. Like, I don't know how, I, I have known people who've done that for long periods of time. And I guess maybe eventually they get used to it. But yeah, I, I, I think they get used to the breakdowns, yeah, not the use of it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I did, I did a, a midnight to 10 shift for about three months. So oh, screw uh, that. And it's, uh, it was, yeah, I, I mean, I'm a, I'm a night person anyway. So that, you know, but so I want to stay up that late. I don't want to get up at that time. Yeah, but there's I'm night like, person no. and then there's vampire. <laughs> don't, don't be the second one. <laughs> That's cool. I, I, 
for some reason though, when I when I I don't and I don't know why my brain's going here. When I think of the Orange Grove thing and I think of, of that sort of connection, I, I get a Steinbecky kind of feel too. Even even the cover of your book kind of gives me that Steinbeck vibe, you know. So that you know Monterey, that part that part of California, that agricultural connection. Um, I I don't know if it's intentional, but it 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 grabbed me right away that there was a certain amount of that, and even just a little bit of, of that I have read through. There seems to be that sense of style to your prose as well. Uh, I don't know. Are you a, a Steinbeck guy? I do like Catcher in the Rye. I like the short stories of his I've read, but I wouldn't be like, he's one of my favorite authors because I haven't read enough to really say that. My my parents said that it reminded them a lot of Slaughterhouse-Five when they read it. Okay. Since that's also, it's a non-chronological story as well. I didn't even think of that when I was writing the book. And that was afterwards they let me know. I was like, oh, I, maybe I like that book. I got a stronger connection to some of the beat writers. So I actually got a stronger connection to say someone like Kerouac because, because of like almost like, almost like a free verse style of your writing. And I feel like, you know, there's a, we're, we're on a journey with you, but, uh, we're kind of in your headspace. So we get to like, uh, as, as opposed to just, you know, so in this story, it's non chronological. So we're in that kind of headspace. And I feel like that's, Something that like Kerouac would do or Kesey would do. Uh, so I felt more of a connection to like some of the beat writers. Um, I'm not sure if you're, uh, if you're connected with any of them at all, but that's, that was some of the feel I got. I've not read enough of them to say that. I, so I definitely didn't even think of that, but I definitely know like they definitely think of, they tend to think of landscapes in a similar way, I think, than I do. Yeah. No, I think you're totally right about that. There's a lot of the, Especially in Kerouac and those that that the the setting and the location is very important, right? Because it's all about movement and it's all about you know um, not being locked into a location necessarily. But so I, I think that's uh, it's very cool. It's cool that you can maybe tap into that without necessarily having you know being super well versed in it. it. Just means that you're a kindred, probably is what it means. I'll accept that. <laughs> yeah. I, now I want to go back and read read more. I have not read Vonnegut in like forever. He's so much um, fun. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. Well, there's there's too many writers that I love that and that I, that I would love to go back and reread books. I'm like, but I have all these books I haven't read yet. I can't really go back and you know. So I do from time to time anyway. Yeah. Just because you know there's only one William Faulkner and Dag Gaiman. I'm going to read <laughs> as I lay dying again because that's an amazing book. But um. So that's cool that you can you can sort of tap into that. There was another, uh, and again, I highlighted. I actually didn't even highlight the whole sentence. And and Nat and I, you know, I'm going to speak for Nat, but I, I guarantee you that I I felt this. And again, it's a, it's part of your autobiography part, and it's uh, uh, the, the line that I highlighted says, "I never considered myself poor." Uh, I'm not going to read the rest, but um, Nat and I grew up in exactly the same way. And I'm not going to get it into like what you write after that, but that one sentence, I have literally said that sentence to so many people who I get to know and I'm trying to explain to them my past, the way I grew up. It's like, yes, my parents were not well off. Uh, they struggled a lot, but I never felt like I was poor. And it's because my parents did certain things to make us feel like yeah, they were struggling, but they gave us something to do. Uh, they gave us, um, like motivation. They made it into a game. And Nat and I have talked about this before, like just getting from where we lived in Eureka to Southern Humble, which is only an hour, 
my dad and my brother and I would collect aluminum cans on the way. My brother and I thought it was a game. No, it was. It wasn't a game. It was quite literally my dad getting enough money <laughs> to put gas in the car. How about how about the game of how far could we coast on the one big hill as we came into town? Because <laughs> yeah. dad because dad would shut the motor off. Yeah, I'd be like, and we're like, that's a great game. How far do you think we can get? He's like, dear God, I hope it gets us at least half a mile down the road because I'm not sure we're going to make it home <laughs> otherwise. But but there was that difference. Did you not this? Did you not agree, John? That there was like, like I thought we were poor until I met poor people. And then I was like, yeah. okay, oh, wait a minute, hold up. Okay, we were, we were not poor. We were broke. There's a big difference. I not once went to bed wondering if we would be evicted from our house, um, if there'd be food on the table. Uh, we weren't going to have all the name brand stuff. And the only time I ever felt poor was when I hung around with people that had money. And then I was like, well, that, yo, yeah. <laughs> how about this, John? Go, to, go over to a friend's house and like, holy shit, all your toys work. Yeah, <laughs> like I had a box full of toys that all needed batteries. Who could afford batteries? We didn't. Have, so we're like, we're, it's like we had stuff, but it was all sort of in various like you know levels of dis, disrepair. But yeah, it's it, it's definitely a different paradigm than I I have known people who were poor, and that's I I would never claim that because that sort of belittles their experience. You go, oh, I was so poor I couldn't afford Levi jeans. I had to have the knockoffs. No, brother, that's just broke. <laughs> But. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, no. Um, it's a sort of thing where, like, when I was growing up, like, because my parents did a lot of like outreach to like even lower or income people, like, I never really considered like, oh yeah, these people live in a hotel. Those people are people who are poor. Like, this is their their house is a hotel that they've lived in long enough that they have. It's technically now considered an apartment because they've lived in that hotel long enough and they can't be evicted from it like a hotel. And so that's their situation. Um, and so because of that, when it's like, when dinner is like a lot smaller than it normally is, I'm like, well, I'm in a house. It, it's still like cooked. It's meat. It's a food that didn't come from a can. Yep. I'm not that. Um, yeah. And then yeah, exactly. going to college and uh, meeting so many other people and being like, I do not belong here. <laughs> what is this? Place? <laughs> <laughs> like, Talking with other people, like, and they're like, oh my goodness, I'm so, I'm like, yeah, no, my family's not well off. And then I'm like, you just, you just spent like $50 at like a thrift store just to pick up a whole bunch of like Polaroid camera and other weird stuff that you do not need to survive. I'm like spending like 20 bucks to get me through the week, like 20 bucks a week on food just because like that's the <laughs> amount of money I have. Otherwise, I won't make it. Like, yeah, I'm, that's right. I'm like, Stop! Stop saying you're poor or you're broke. Like you're fine. Like, <laughs> right, right. I'm over here saving the seasoning packets for my ramen noodles. See if I can stretch it one more day. Maybe adding a maybe. You know, I will realize some canned uh, vegetables. Ramen noodles are not the best value uh, for your dollar. Uh, just a thing of flour and a carton of eggs. That's way more noodles. Oh yeah. man, you could do so yeah. much, right? Yeah. So that's what I realized, and so that's how I was able, like. And it makes you look a lot cooler. It's like, wait, you make noodle, you make your pasta from scratch. I'm like, yeah, because it's financially the better option. <laughs> because you know how much flour and eggs cost? Not very much. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, eggs down. Okay. Eggs yeah. Down, so. When I was in college. Yeah, when yeah, I was in well, college. <laughs> no, we, we, it's interesting though. All of this talk about our experiences is what I think is interesting, which is why I enjoy, you know, books like yours and and and. Where you get a chance to 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 see 
to see something from a different vantage point, right? And I think that's what you did with your characters. Like, okay, you had this character of Audrey, this happened. Okay, but now here's this other character. How did this person experience that? So that's, to me, that's, that's, that's the crux of it all. Okay, is, is learning to put ourselves in somebody else's space and see things at least potentially partially from their point of view. So as you do that, is that is that difficult to do, or is that or is that therapeutic in a way to try and see that from another side? It was definitely a therapeutic thing. Um, definitely, like partially me just trying to work through like my own life because it was a thing where I I think what definitely inspired the novel was realizing uh, me and my brother. Uh, my brother also did the cover for the book, so shout out to him mm. for that. Nice, um, nice. We both had like such a different like I think we had a very similar childhood until maybe like when he was in like ninth grade and then around then we kind of like it feels like our experiences shifted and just like trying to understand like what differences that I like he saw that thing very differently than I saw it and vice versa um because he ended up going to an art school and I continued being homeschooled the local school that I would have gone to um got in trouble for just being uh, really bad and extremely racist. Uh, so my parents were like, you're not going there. Uh, so that's why I was homeschooled, which was a different experience. Uh, especially yeah, for sure. being homeschooled by someone who's not... Like, normally when people hear, oh, you were homeschooled, it's like, oh, so you're raised very, very Republican. I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> no, no, not at all. <laughs> Growing up in like that experience when like I was homeschooled all the way through, my brother wasn't, just like, there is such a different way that he looked at uh, situations than I did because I like as time went on, like me and my mom having like have a very like we're able to like talk with each other very well. I think that's probably why the reason why uh, the mom doesn't exist in the story is like I don't need to resolve anything there. She's just dead. (laughs) 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 When I was learning to drive, like me and her would be like yelling with each other and then we'd come to a stop and be like, we're good, right? Yeah, we're good. Okay. This is going to happen again, right? Yes. Cool. Okay. And then we keep going. We'd get back. It'd be calm. We'd get back to yelling. And then we'd stop. Still good? Yep. Cool. Oh, yeah. And that would just happen like that. And it was like, I felt very, it just felt genuinely like a very healthy relationship to be able to do that. Um, just like to be very honest, like that you're getting stressed out, like yelling at each other as like, I'm trying to learn how to drive. That I had that ability to like have that relationship with my mom and my brother would didn't seem to like have that same kind of relationship. Uh, he definitely seemed to like have a bit less steady of one there. It's not my place to really speak on it. He's not read the book. I was hoping he'd read the book before it was out. Uh, so, well, it's too late now. I can't undo that. <laughs> yeah, you had, bro. <laughs> yep. Uh, <laughs> but it's definitely just like realizing that I the way I saw my parents is different than the way he saw like our parents and just like trying to see like why that is and trying to like understand that aspect of it. So it definitely was like therapeutic for me to work over my own things while also then seeing like trying to understand what my brother was going through a bit. How, how, how close are you guys in age? Uh, he's two years older. Okay. So John and I are about that. John's about not quite two, he's like a year and a half older, but we have a younger sister who is nine years old, younger than me and 10 years younger than John. That would be a fascinating little exploration, wouldn't it? Because her relationship with, my, with our parents is vastly different than John's and my relationship, you know? Well, the, the, the weird part is like, you're in my relationship. I, I think 
uh, we could speak to what David's saying. Uh, our, our memories of certain things growing up are vastly different within our own lifestyle than the way we were raised. Uh, you, you, this has been brought up before. Like you, uh, you've mentioned in the past where I, I like very like proudly wore my Christian rock shirts to school every day as like some kind of like, like I'm here. I'm Christian. Get used to deal it. with it. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and really what it was, is it was the only way I could, I, I thought I could combat our parents who were super conservative. So Christian metal was at least metal, right? At least it wasn't, uh, it wasn't Keith Green. It wasn't second chapter of Acts. It wasn't, uh, Amy Grant. So I was, I was proudly trying to be, rebellious, but within the confines of the church. Yeah. And well, and within what was acceptable, you know, at home, we weren't trying to get, we weren't trying to get in trouble. But so, yeah, even, even in ours, I mean, I, I bet if we spent any time talking about it, we we, we would, we could recount certain events and go, that wasn't the way I, I don't remember it that way. Not that it didn't happen, but maybe my perspective on it was different. You know, I would certainly guarantee my sister's is way different. Because by the time she's 10 years old, John and I are married out of the house. She's a single, you know, she's an only child from like 10 years on. Um, maybe something like that. Yeah, we were, John and I both married very young. Thank you, evangelical Christianity for, uh, yeah. <laughs> at least in my case, John's was, I don't know, love. My, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's a good thing. My wife does not listen to this podcast. So I say some, I say some stupid yeah. shit. And I'm like, please, neither does mine. Kim, so. don't listen. I'm just, I'm talking out of every orifice, mostly. But I mean, that one. to but, bring it back to the book, yeah, though. So, yeah, go, please. You're, you're, you're connecting your, your perspective on something to your brother's perspective. And then you're, you're showing it in a fictionalized character as well. So these two characters with different perspectives on the passing of their father. And then again, our memories aren't chronological. So these things come up. And I think, you know, I think anybody who's had any time where they sit with their family and things come up, right? They want to talk about things that have happened in the past. They, they don't, they don't come up in chronological order. They come up in whatever, like that triggers this memory. This triggers that memory. This triggers that memory. And I feel like that's kind of what you're doing here, right? Yes. Yeah. It definitely was like, as I would be writing it, I'd be like, what? Like, I realized, like, hold on. I want to know how this character, like, how Jacob, like, what's it like when he goes to work? Or, like, when he gets back from work? Or how does Audrey, like, when she gets home and is, like, has a bad day, what is she doing? How is she reacting to that? Um, Because, as mentioned, when you read the through line, just, like, it's about, like, your people are defined more by their little moments and their errands. You're like, that's what we are more than any um, big, those big events are come like time-wise a lot smaller part percentage of our lives. And so just like, and those big, and it's also that those big events still like ripple through every continuous moment after that. And, and then even backwards into our memories. Um, and so, uh, it's just trying to be like, how, how does that affect, like, just trying to see how the, uh, that those ripples have gone all the way through. I know, um, there, I think you've probably gotten through the segment that, uh, is that Foster's Freeze? I mean, uh, cause even in that chapter, in like, in the middle of it, playing in with memory, 
in the middle of the chapter, um, Audrey just texts Jacob, like, did, did, uh, Foster's Freeze have like the good whipped cream or the really crap whipped cream? <laughs> if you're a kid, like, when you were a kid, like, that was such a difference between which ice, fast, like, soft serve ice cream you wanted. And so, like, that was just a thought that came to my mind. And so I was like, I genuinely messaged my brother. I think he, I might have copied him verbatim what he said into that scene <laughs> just because it felt like, it felt relevant just to be like, yeah, this is to like interject in that memory, that little question of what was the whipped cream there? And so just to have that in there and then the story continues after the, she gets the res- message response. Wow. <laughs> Which place was that, John, that had the crap whipped cream? It was a, yeah, I I'm just, I don't remember. <laughs> we, we, we lived in a small town. There was only a couple of choices. Yeah, for us, uh, we went to Thrifty. Remember Thrifty? Oh, man. Thrifty ice cream. So Thrifty pharmacies. Was a drugstore. Yeah. Yeah, it was a drugstore, but it had a little ice cream place in front. And they did the, they did the cylinder scoops. It was like, it had like a, so they'd scoop it out and it but came you could out stack like them. And they was 25 cents. A scoop. Was like it? a, a scoop. scoop. So we, it was the place, speaking about not being very well off, it was my parents would let us get a triple scoop because it was only 75 cents. So we'd always get a triple scoop on our way to our grandparents' house. So we stopped. So, I mean, again, it's like this random weird little memory, right? Of like this moment that I can't remember who it was. We talked to a guy and he talked about those moments where you're intentional and those, those memories stick. And it's like, it's kind of like that, right? It's like, this is an intentional memory where everyone's memory kind of converges because it was something that was important to everybody. Yeah, it was a bit of a touchstone for all of us, right? Right. Like we can so, all kind of go, okay, regardless of what was happening, we still have, I remember that. And it is one of those things too that will pop up in weird places, right, John? Like at random yeah. times, which again, I keep going back to what you said. I, I, I'm still, it makes so much sense that these memories are are not chronological, right? So in like at totally random times, I have that memory of, and I could see like this sort of stream of consciousness, like I'm writing something and talking about this and going, oh man, what was that place we used to go to and get ice cream that was kind of like cylinder shaped? Remember that? Oh yeah, okay. And then back to the story because it sort of pops up as a as this intermittent thought. Um, it, it To me, it brings a lot of genuineness to it. It's like, okay, because that's really, I think, how most of our brains function on any given day. It's like sort of, you know, maybe there is a linearness to it, but it's, it's uh, there's all kinds of other stuff that gets interjected in there too, right, John? <laughs> He's looking at me like, what the fuck? No, I, I agree, and I think it, what I was going to say is, I think it also connects to this idea that everyone thinks that these stages of grief are linear, right? And oh, I think absolutely, yeah. It's only it's only been recently that that I've realized that that's not true. These are phases you'll go through, but they're not linear. Uh, you might go to acceptance, or not acceptance, but you might go through anger and denial, and you go back to anger, and you go back uh, there. But it's taught to us through kind of pop psychology that this is a linear thing. So we all think that we're just going to, once we get through all these stages, we're going to be hunky-dory. And I feel like that's another step in what you're writing about, specifically since there is you know, the loss of a parent that, Grief is also not linear. So obviously this book can't be linear. It can't be chronological because our, our grief doesn't allow that. When I was writing the novel, like there were, I graduated college in the, like 2020. So like the, my, I begin my final semester. I'm excited. I'm like, yeah, this is the last semester. I'm going to make it count. And then everyone I know moves back to their home state. Right. 
And then I'm just like, I've ever, and uh, like the year before that, my parents had moved to Idaho. And during their move, our pet cat got lost in the drive. And I'm like, I don't have anything familiar really left anymore. And so there is just like this strong grief for like everything I've known is now basically gone. When I was writing the novel, um, it was like the, it's after I moved out of the really bad house I began the novel in, the second house I was in, I would just like randomly just like get really strong. Just like, I don't know if it was either an anxiety or a panic attack. And it would just be like, oh gosh, like just like, trying to like just sit there and let it pass and be like just please leave me alone um just like i don't want to deal with this right now and there was just this like strong sense of just like grief and just like overwhelming emotion that i'm just like trying to like i'm just like unsure of what to do with it and i think i mentioned in the book like it's the sense of like if i if this grief causes me to like shut myself off from anyone because I don't want to lose things again that would be basically saying I think that the good times that I experienced are worth less than the pain that was suffered from losing them and I hate that and I don't agree with that but at the same time I don't want to go through that again and I don't know how to like as I'm writing it like I don't know how to really like open back up or let myself be hurt like that again when and it's just like I know what I believe is I know I believe that this is good enough but I it's hard to turn belief into actual practicality yeah 100% in the time in the time frame you were in when you wrote this I think there's so much resonance there with what people were experiencing at the time too right I mean that if, if nothing else that that period of time during COVID there's a lot of grief associated with that for things that were lost and things that were obviously the loss of life is one thing, but it was it was more than that. It was this sort of sense of of invulnerability. You know, there's all of a sudden there's this there's this thing that we had talked about in theory for years and years that could come along and actually cause us some real harm. There's the eroding of all the faith in institutions and structures, right? That comes along with that 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 came with Trump and his trouncing of norms and all the stuff that he did. And then even just the day-to-day, like even the mundane stuff, like you mentioned, like I had friends who were graduating college who didn't get to graduate college, like the way they had planned. And I think COVID, uh, again, COVID is a really good way to, to kind of bring this to an end. Well, I was just thinking of like, like, like Jill, like Aiden's fiance didn't get to graduate. Right. Like, and it seems like a small thing, but this is something you've worked your entire life for from the right. time you were a little kid. And then for it to come to an end so unceremoniously, <laughs> like, right. okay, you graduated. Yeah. Good. Go have fun. It was like, well, fuck. Yeah. And then Corbin, in the middle of his high school, high school career, whatever you want to call it, a year and a half of being away from all his friends and doing distance learning and then, then being dropped back in on his senior year. Yeah. I mean, all that and stuff. Got- like, okay, I have to relearn how to be around people again. And then, and, and on top of that, Again, this, I think this all goes back to this idea of like nothing's chronological when we when we think about it in the past or we think about our past. So I have a lot of people who talk to me about how but how they were able to get so much done during COVID because they couldn't do their normal job. Right. So they had to find something else to do. They had to find another outlet to keep them entertained or uh, their brains working. I was working my fucking ass off. Right. Yeah. For 
12, 13 hours a day. I have no idea what they're talking about. You were living the, uh, the, the, you were, you were living the life of that guy who wrote that one song. You were working overtime hour for bullshit pay. Well, and, you know, it's like this idea, right? It's like this idea of like the essential worker, right? So we were yeah. the essential workers. And at the beginning of that, we were like the heroes. I'm not kidding. We got thanked on a daily basis. And then we told them to wear masks. And then you were the fucking enemy. And then we were the Nazis. And, but again, when I look back at that time, I can't, I can't look at it in a chronological order. I look at it at moment by moment. I look at it as like, a shitstorm, happy moment, shitstorm, happy moment. And that's what I, that's how I connect to it. So that's, and I, I'm, I'm really bummed that David, we've lost him again, but I really think that that's kind of what he's getting at in this book with this idea that the chron, there's no chronological order and it kind of bounces back and forth. And then the autobiographical part of this is like his interpretation of what's going on in his life. At the time he's writing this book, yeah, no, no, it's so it's super, it's super meta, which I think is like really fits within within this time frame. But at the same time, he's allowing us to see into his psyche and why he wrote the book the way he wrote it. And um, unfortunately, he's not going to be with us to well in this conversation. But. So we can just say this for him: buy the damn book. Yeah, I mean, do yourself a favor if you want to read something that is that is definitely different and new and fresh. I mean, I. I'd, I'd say grab it. It's it's available on Amazon. It's a yet another instant choir classic. And John and I will make sure and drop links in the show notes and everything. And um, again, we had some technical difficulties. So David, uh, when you listen back, know that we missed you and we were bummed we couldn't say goodbye. But the technology gods giveth and the technology gods taketh away, man. You live and you die by your internet <laughs> so true. connection. So true. So. <laughs> We've all been there. So I... Nat and I have both been in this this exact situation, so uh, so we completely understand. It happens sometimes. Your internet just goes. <laughs> so, but yeah, John's going to go off and have dinner with uh, with my with our sister and a cousin and and uh, who I haven't seen in a very long time. So tell her I said hi, man. I will. All right. Thank you for listening to This Is Not Church. Be sure to rate and review the podcast on your platform of choice. If you would like to partner with us, visit patreon.com slash thisisnotchurch, where you will receive exclusive content such as early access to episodes, videos of upcoming episodes, and live Q&A sessions. Be sure to check out our Facebook group or follow us on Twitter and Instagram. All the links are in the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode.